Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Victor Hoffman. Victor, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you having me on, man. For, for sure. So, uh, Victor, we're going to dig into your story uh, here in a little bit. But before we get to that point, I've got some uh, questions I like to ask all of my guests just to uh, kind of get the conversational ball rolling, so to speak. So I would like to know, first of all, Victor, how do you start your day? Do you have any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most mornings or most days? Yeah, I um, I do. Um, for me, the morning routine actually starts the night before. So this was something I really have kind of developed as I went through different internships and things like that throughout my career. Um, where for me, the night before, I lay out all the clothes for the next day. Um, I fill up my water bottle the night before so I can drink it first thing in the morning. I lay out all of my things that I need for breakfast the night before I get out the food. Well, that's not the ones you got to refrigerate, but, um, all, everything I can pretty much I get out, I lay out. Um, and that really sets me up the next morning because sometimes there are early mornings that I do kind of go on autopilot. So to set it up like that really helps, um, in terms of the actual morning routine that day. Um, it's big for me to always get breakfast in. Um, so for me, it's always um, blocking out time for that. I'm not the guy that's going to wake up 30 minutes before I have to be at a session and show up right on time, right? I like to get up early, um, make sure I have an, enough time blocked out for that. And then also with breakfast, I like to watch podcasts on YouTube. Um, podcasts going on YouTube has been really big um, thing lately. So it's a good time for me to kind of learn things in the morning while I'm having breakfast. I kind of get to knock out two birds in one stone with that regard. So, um, yeah, I usually spend my morning watching different podcasts. Maybe now it's college baseball season, so we're in the uh, playoffs and all that. So there'll be some highlights some days. So it's not always podcast. Uh, I do like to mix it up, but always some type of breakfast and YouTube or something like that, just to kind of get the day going on a good foot. Love it, man. Uh, I, I love how you said, or you're kind of inferring that preparation for the next day starts uh, the evening before, so to speak. That's that's really cool. Now, in terms of breakfast, what does that kind of look like you on on uh, most mornings? Are you like a just a protein drink kind of guy? Are you trying to get some whole food in you? What does that look like, Victor? So I've actually had the same breakfast for the probably the past two to three years. I mean, I'll mix it up a little bit on the weekends, but I kind of keep the same base of um, usually 250 grams of egg whites. And then I'll usually put in one to two eggs for just a better fat source. So I'm not just getting all strictly protein from the egg whites. One serving of oatmeal, um, toast, two pieces of toast with honey. And then I like to throw a banana on top of the toast as well. But that is pretty much my staple. Uh, people ask me all the time how you don't get tired of eating the same food day in and day out, but I love it. It works for me. It sets my day off on the right foot. So uh, I stick with it. Love it, man. And then uh, you mentioned earlier water. So uh, are you drinking water mostly in the morning as well? And then throughout the day, or do you add in a little bit of coffee? What does that kind of look like in terms of uh, liquid intake? Yeah, so I have a 30, I have a big 32 ounce bottle gallon. Um, and I like to fill it up the night before just because I feel when I feel hydrated in the morning, it usually helps my energy level a little bit. Um, 
And I will drink water throughout the day. Some days is, is hard. If you have a lot of different groups and stuff like that, you kind of forget to. That's usually the one thing I tend to forget to do. Um, but in terms of caffeine, I'm not a huge coffee guy. Um, I do like, actually, we, me and my fiance buy these little water packets from Kroger that have 150, 160 milligrams of caffeine, B vitamins, stuff like that. So I will throw that in my morning um, water on my way into work. But um, usually that water I drink right in the morning is just straight water, um, get a little water in me. I've also read a lot of stuff about hydrating first thing in the morning kind of helps clear out uh, like mental debris and all that in terms of brain function and stuff like that. So um, I just kind of like to do it to check that box. Cool, man. Love it. Uh, I love the the thoroughness of that uh, breakfast and keeping it uh, the same. That's kind of how I roll too. So um, now the next question here uh, is what's your favorite book or uh, what's the book that you like to gift often? You can, you know, give, give both if you like, if there's more than one book, uh, give, give me all 10, it doesn't matter. And then you mentioned just a, a second ago that you do uh, like to listen to podcasts, especially in the morning is kind of part of your morning routine. So uh, what's your favorite book or book that you gift often? And then do you have kind of like a go-to podcast or um, are there several podcasts that you uh, thoroughly enjoy, Victor? Yeah, so I'd say number one book that I like to give, I, I really do. I probably have a couple. Um, but number one, I think working in the competitive environment of Division One athletics, the one that's really worked with or I've really enjoyed is Winning by Tim Grover. Um, it kind of dives into not only the really highs and highs of winning, but also the sacrifices that winning really takes um, day in and day out. Um, as far as podcasts go, Real AF with Andy Priscilla is a very good one. Um, he does a lot of different forms of that podcast to kind of hit all different things and kind of help people grow from that regard. So I really enjoyed the different segments of that. Um, another podcast I've really um, started to enjoy is Modern Wisdom with Chris Williamson. Um, another one being the Rich Roll podcast and the Nick Bear podcast as well. So like I said, I'm <laughs> I'm big on the podcast, so I can give you a list of those. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I've I've been podcasting for almost five years, Victor. So I'm uh, I would consider myself a podcast junkie as yep. well. Now, uh, first of all, uh, I want to kind of touch on a couple aspects or a couple things that you mentioned just uh, there with the, the the book and the podcast. So uh, I got to agree with you, man, that uh, the, the winning by Tim Grover. Uh, I, I own that book. I've read it a couple of times. I've, I've gifted it uh, or took my copy and actually gave it to my chiropractor and said, hey, you, you need to check this out. This is a powerful book. Uh, so uh, now in terms of winning or maybe just Tim Grover, obviously uh, anybody that's in the strength and conditioning realm uh, you know, or the fitness realm ha has probably heard of Tim Grover. He was Michael Jordan's uh, personal trainer, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, and uh, a slew of other uh, Hall of Fame uh, uh, basketball players. I know he, I think last year was working with uh, uh, the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. Russell but, Wilson. Uh, what's that? <laughs> Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson. There we go. There go. Um, but anyways, the point that I'm trying to get at, or I kind of want to uh, gather from you, Victor, uh, with the book winning uh, or maybe just Tim Grover in general, because uh, when I learned a little bit more about Tim and how he approached his training with Michael Jordan, like I was pretty surprised that he 
would have Michael Jordan actually lifting weights on game days. Like that kind of blew me away because that kind of goes against everything that, uh, you know, I've kind of heard or I've ever recommended. So did you kind of take some uh, pretty strong takeaways from that book or some strong takeaways from Tim Grover specifically? If so, what are those? And then uh, I want to ask you a little bit about um, one of your podcasts that you mentioned. Yeah. So with Tim, I actually started with Relentless. So I don't know if you've read Relentless as well. Um, the thing I really took away from that, from those two books, um, winning in particular is like Tim at the time was doing something that no one ever heard of. Right. So lifting on game days, it's actually become a lot more common now, especially in the NBA with how much they're traveling. Um, but he was really starting something new and to be able to get Michael Jordan and all of his other athletes to really buy into that had to be such a hard task. Um, but at the same time, there was a mutual trust there that you've brought me on to do this. I'm going to help you. You might not fully understand or know like the benefits of it right now. I mean, I can tell you, but you're not going to believe me until we get results with it. Um, and I think that has taught me a lot in terms of just building relationships with athletes, understanding that, you know, I have their best interests in mind and they have to have that. We have to have that mutual trust between us to um, be able to have that. So I think that was really big from that book. And then the other big takeaway, like I kind of said, kind of giving you the brief synopsis was when people talk about winning, they glorify it so highly, right? Like it's the best, it's the best thing ever. It's awesome. It's great, which it is. Um, whether you're winning in sports, whether you're winning with something in life, whether you're winning anything, school, academics, whatever. Um, but people don't see or talk about the really hard things that go into that. They don't see the sleepless nights. They don't see the relationships that might get tangled because you're spending so much time here or there. Um, so I think that was another thing that's like, yeah, if you want to win, it's great, but make sure you're willing to handle the sacrifice as well. Mm. Love it, man. Love it. Um, now I want to ask you about, uh, you mentioned, uh, Andy Frisilla in terms of favorite podcast. Now, uh, I personally have never really gotten into, to, to Andy for, uh, various reasons, but, um, obviously he's been very successful with the, the supplement company, uh, branding. I mean, just, uh, uber successful in terms of uh, an entrepreneur, him, his brother, um, and everything they've built with First Form. Uh, what what do you like about Andy? Uh, he's he's very edgy in terms of uh, his language and the way he kind of approaches things. But uh, what what do you like about Andy? What's what's something or some things that you always glean from uh, you know his content that he puts out there, uh, Victor? Yeah, for Andy, I think it comes down to a lot. He's not afraid to own his story and his upbringing, right? He's very honest where he says, like, I'm not different than any of you all. Like, I'm obviously a millionaire. I've built this billion-dollar company, whatever it is. But at the same time, I came from nothing, right? I didn't own or I didn't make any real money, like, five to ten years into it. Um, and that really resonates with me because one thing I talk about a lot is playing the long game and really looking – at a long-term view of things. Um, and I think people look at people like Andy Frisella and they think, wow, this guy had it really easy. But if you listen to his story, it's, you see, he could have given up so many times before, right? So, um, and he's very, once again, very honest about that. 
He's very honest about what you need to expect if you go down the road, if you're trying to, people want to be like Andy Vercella, right? But he's like, if you want to be like me, once again, this is what I've been through to get here. So you need to understand that. Um, And so that's really been, um, I've really enjoyed listening to that because I feel like a lot of people need to hear it. I mean, sometimes even myself, I need to hear some of these things. So um, it's always just really good reminders. He provides a lot of good content about that. Excellent, man. Okay. Uh, The next question what life lesson have you been taught or have you learned in the last year? Now, I just put in this question the last year because I want something a little bit recent. It could have been something that you learned last week, last month, in the last six months, last couple of years. But I want it to be uh, more within recent times as opposed to 10 years ago. Okay, so uh, what life lesson have you been taught or learned within the last year or recent times, Victor? So I kind of hit on it a little bit ago, um, just talking about really having what I call is playing the long game. I'm not the only one that calls it that. People have said that before. Um, But the concept of playing the long game is not so worried about what is happening five to 10 years down the road. It's putting your complete presence, energy, focus into everything you can do on one single day um, and letting those days, those really good days that you put together compound over time. Um, and that is something I've learned, right? Just going through different, um, and we'll talk about like my strength and conditioning journey. Um, I don't know if there was ever a point in the road where I was like, wow, I want to be at this school full time. I want to be here. Like I want to be in this exact position in five years. Like I've always struggled with three to five year goals. I have general expectations of where I want to be in those five, three to five years, but for me, it's really about, I need to focus on what I'm doing now, like where my feet are. Uh, I need to focus on the athletes I have now. I need to work really well with the coaches I work with now, the administration I work under, those relationships need to be solid. Um, And then I've always put complete trust that when you do that, focusing more on a daily basis, more than a big, broad, long-term vision, um, everything else tends to take care of itself. So that's been a lesson I've learned because that was something I applied through the past six months, year, whatever. And it really kind of ended me up here at where I'm at in Mississippi State now. So and the other places I've been prior to that, just that same kind of mantra, that same um, kind of path. So now in terms of playing the long game and kind of this this life lesson that you're you, you've learned and you're continuing to learn, Victor, what was kind of the uh, light bulb moment or when did this kind of come into your existence in the sense of like, was there an experience where you were maybe getting a little too anxious about looking ahead or is this just a a quote that you've heard from other successful strength and conditioning coaches? Like when was it or how, how was this kind of presented to you so that you've adopted it and, and are applying it to your life current day? So really, I think I started to somewhat see it in kind of in action, right, where I would just really be super focused on the situation I was in, the people I was working with. And then those people might recommend me to do something else. Right. They the word of mouth goes to somewhere else. And I was like I was kind of confused. I was like, I mean, I don't know what I really did to deserve this kind of like an imposter syndrome type deal. Um, but then I look back in hindsight, I'm like, it's because I was really focusing on those moments. And then when you do great work, 
the rest take care of itself. Um, that was something I started to probably realize at the in my internship days um, was where I really started to recognize it. And then I think just the more I got into the podcast world, the reading books like Relentless, winning stuff like that, all these high performers kind of kept saying the same message, right? And I was like, this makes sense. That's a great way to think about it. Um, and it kind of played, I mean, that's how I kind of adopted it. It was just kind of, they put words to what I was feeling and thinking. So, and that's really the way I've really tried to shape my um, vision and look at it that way. Talk to me a little bit about imposter syndrome. What, what, I, I mean, I, I know what it is. Yep. <laughs> Probably a lot of people listening to this will, will know what it is and has it, ha, have experienced it themselves. But from your perspective, uh, how have you experienced imposter syndrome? What, what is it to you? And uh, is it something that you still kind of struggle with to, to this day, Victor? So with me, my first real encounter with imposter syndrome came as probably a sophomore in college, right? This was a time where I was really having to decide what path I want to go down. I was in an exercise science degree at the University of Louisville where I was on the path to get one. Um, and, you know, with exercise science, you can either go the physical therapy route, you can go personal training, you can go strength and conditioning. So... I really had to decide what I wanted to do. Now, as a sophomore in college, I kind of knew that I wanted to work in athletics. I knew I wanted to work with athletes. But at the time, and I think it still is probably pretty pre prevalent, that a lot of college strength coaches played college sports. Mm. I did not. Mm. So I started looking around at these internship opportunities, and a lot of them in the job description would say, hey, we'd like you to have two years of playing experience. And that really almost turned me away from the profession because I was like, I didn't play two years of college sports. I only played high school sports. So really, like, am I going down a path where this is I'm not going to be able to do it because I don't have college experience? And that like my narrow mindedness at the time was you didn't play college sports, so you can't be a strength and conditioning coach. So I actually for a brief period of time, a semester or two said, Hey, I want to do physical therapy because I love exercise science. I love training and I want to help people, but I don't have two years of college playing experience to do this. So, um, and then I don't know what shifted my kind of one, two or focus. Maybe I heard a couple stories of those who didn't play college sports and uh, went into strength and conditioning, but I kind of got back on the right track, but there was, that was probably the first time that imposter syndrome really took a big hold. Um, and then just, I've kind of kept that on my shoulder throughout my entire career to this point, right? Like I've always known that I didn't play college sports. So I've always kind of used that imposter syndrome in a positive yeah. way to work harder than everybody else, because I feel like there's some days I feel like I don't belong, right? Like that's kind of the, uh, thoughts that go through my head sometimes with imposter syndrome as for other people too, like. You didn't play college sports. Should you really be a strength and conditioning coach? But that I wouldn't trade that for the world because it's pushed me to work harder and get further ahead. Um, so, yeah. Cool, man. This this is why I absolutely love uh, bringing people on the podcast and having all of you share your story because we get to we, we get to uh, see behind the curtain, so to speak. Right. Like uh, if you think about Bill Belichick, he never played football in the NFL but he's going to go down as a hall of fame football coach. And you could go down the list of uh, coaches 
whether it's strength and conditioning or professional coaches or, uh, you know, uh, power five, uh, division one school coaches and, and all kinds of other professions that maybe didn't have quote unquote, the right experience or what have you. Uh, and they become very, very, uh, quote unquote successful. Even if we go back to, uh, Tim Grover, right? Like, uh, his story is he like sent because it was like back in the eighties, uh, or early nineties, he sent letters, uh, to like every player of the Chicago bulls, um, except for Michael Jordan, he was working like for minimum wage at like some, I think, uh, a rec club or gym in Chicago. He had a master's degree in exercise science or whatever. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he hears back from the, the Chicago Bulls and it's Michael Jordan that wants to meet with him at his house. It's just, I mean, story after story after story uh, of that. And uh, even like you mentioned, like Andy Frisilla, like, you know, I think they slept like in their first supplement store just to you know try to make ends meet. I, I, I love it. So uh, that's so cool. I'm, I'm thankful that you uh, shared that Victor. Um, now, before we kind of take a, a huge dive into your backstory and get more into the strength and conditioning, I want to ask you one more question in terms of the conversational starters, and then we're going to start moving into uh, your, your upbringing. So I'd like to ask you, do you have a favorite quote, mantra, or word? I mean, I me I mentioned it before, but the long game is a big one for me. I, that's what I tend to tell myself a lot is play the long game. But um, <laughs> I actually follow the work of, uh, I don't know if you know, Cameron Haynes, yeah. um, the bow hunter and uh, another great author. But um, a quote that he loves that I kind of like to embody is nobody cares work harder. Um, and it's kind of that general idea that and it's kind of a quick check check in like really how you feel doesn't really matter. It's just nobody cares. Just keep on going type thing. So I think some days we all kind of need that. Like we try to hold our head down or we get caught up in whatever the world's throwing at us. And it's like, end of the day, nobody cares, work harder. <laughs> yeah. Amen, man. I I'm, I'm on the same uh, wavelength with you on, on that one. All right. So uh great start. Let's uh, transition now, Victor, into uh, your childhood. So I uh, am curious about where you actually grew up, like what state, um, what was your uh, family like? Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? Uh, you mentioned you did play sports in high school. So what sports did you play? Uh, paint that picture for us in regards to your younger years um, up to about high school. Um, stop at high school because uh, I'll uh, transition us into post high school with some questions at that point. So uh, what was your childhood like? Let, let us know if you don't mind. Yeah, so grew up Louisville, Kentucky. Um, lived there really my entire life, but just focusing on more of the childhood aspect. Um, yeah, grew up, have, you know, both parents, one sister. Um, she's about three years older than me. Um, so we were pretty, I mean, we're still very close, but we were pretty close in age. So we did a lot of things together growing up. Um, you know, went to middle school at a a, very, a Catholic school that was actually pretty close to my house. So it was pretty easy to uh, navigate back and forth. Um, but really the childhood from the childhood aspect, what I grew up in a very good spot, um, but I, probably about middle school, high school or not middle, late middle school, I started to 
probably pick up on bad eating habits. And going into my eighth grade year, I mean, I was hovering 230, 240 pounds as an eighth grader. Um, like it was, it was really bad. Um, but as we'll talk about kind of going into high school, I was, I kind of found training as an outlet um, because I knew that, I mean, I think at my heaviest, I got up to 275 pounds as a sophomore in high school. And I knew things really needed to change. I don't there. I do remember as a kid that one time I went to the doctor and they pretty much told me like, Hey, if you continue down this path of gaining the weight, like you are, you know, like you're going to pretty much live miserably. I don't remember the exact specifics of the conversation, but it was kind of an eye opener for me. And at the time that didn't stick with me. Like I kept doing what I was doing. Um, but my sophomore year of high school, things really started to change. I found training. I kind of saw the payoff of working hard and shedding weight off. Um, I wanted to play high school sports. So that was another incentive to train as well. Um, and so I actually played all four years of high school football. My first two years, so freshman and sophomore year, I was so heavy, I guess, and unathletic that I actually played left tackle on the offensive line. Um, and then my last two years after I'd kind of found fitness, found training, I shed probably 50, 60 pounds. They moved me to tight end because I'm still a pretty big dude, but I'm not small enough to be receiver. So um, at the time they made me do a little bit of both the blocking and uh, going out and catching passes. But um, that was a big, the big transformation point for me came that sophomore year kind of from childhood or childhood adolescence to what would kind of go on to be a career path for me was that gap in sophomore year of high school where um, I really dove hard into the training aspect of things by junior, senior year, it was almost like an obsession. <laughs> so, I mean, I was playing football, but I think I really enjoyed it more so for the, um, training fitness aspect of it. And that kind of led me into college, um, and kind of where I wanted to go into college. Okay. Uh, academically, when you were, let's just say high school, uh, did you enjoy going to school? Did you enjoy academics or was it something that like for most of us, we, we went to school cause we had to, to play sports. What was the academic side for you? Like Victor? I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't one that was just going to put in zero effort. Um, I was going to do what I needed to do to get good grades now. So I would, I would think I, I mean, hung around somewhere above a 3.0, maybe 3.5 GPA. So like I was doing well with grades, I was doing well with school, but I wouldn't say I necessarily, um, found a passion for learning or anything like that in high school, which is kind of interesting, but Okay, now I want to I want to take a step back here and talk about this uh, these eating habits that you said you kind of started to develop, uh, you know, uh, in middle school. Now, uh, where do you trace these poor eating habits back to? Now that you're an adult, uh, you're obviously into fitness and training other people. Uh, can you put your finger on why you started eating this way? I mean, is it something that uh, your mom or your dad uh, was was modeling? Was it from some sort of traumatic experience? Like, wh what was it? What is it? Do, do you kind of know or, or not necessarily, Victor? 
No, I mean, I've had a lot of time to kind of think back on what really started that. Um, and I can't really even identify what year I would say it started. Um, but I do think, you know, just being at such a young age, it was more just the environment I was in, the food I was being given at the time. And, you know, at that time, you don't know any of the health, um, you don't know any of the health consequences, anything like that. So, I mean, I can think back to middle school, high or late middle school, where I was eating McDonald's cheeseburgers pretty much every single night. Um, I used to love WWE. So we would have WWE pizza night every Monday. Right. So it was just things like that. And I've openly joked with my mom, like, why didn't you just tell me no? Uh, <laughs> so um, and my mom and dad were actually divorced. So I did grow up primarily with my mom. Like me and my dad are super close. We saw each other every week, two, two, three days a week um, and still talk all the time. But growing up, a lot of what was going in my body food wise, um, I've always told my mom, like, hey, you, you could have just told me no on a couple things. Like, let me have some fun. But at the same time, uh, hold me back some. But no, it was we joke about it now. And it's awesome. But yeah, I was definitely part of it. And it just steamrolled and steamrolled all the way up until that early, those early high school years. So then um, before we get into college, I want to kind of ask, like, obviously, you went through a pretty, uh, uh, no pun intended, uh, big uh, transformation with with the weight loss. In high school, you found training, you kind of sounds like found your groove and your, your, your identity, uh, in and through training in the gym or the weight room for sports and things like that. Now, when you lost all that weight and you kind of went through that transformation, because we all know as teenagers, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on, man. Like socially, there's a lot going on physically. There's a lot going on. Uh, hormonally, there's a lot going on. Uh, you know, a lot of us, we, we, uh, really, uh, attached to lifting weights, uh, because it makes us feel better. It makes us look better, but let's be real. We want to, we want to get girls. We want to, you know, go to the dances and all of that stuff that, uh, is a part of, uh, being a teenager in high school. So once you started to go through this transformation, the point I'm trying to get at here, Victor, I mean, I'm assuming it probably boosted your confidence. Uh, like talk about that a little bit, because I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of, uh, strength training specifically for, uh, you know, younger, uh, boys and teenage boys is, is the confidence and the identity that they're able to gain through the strength training. Right. So talk about that transformation, how it positively impacted you when you were a teenager, when you were in high school, please. Yeah. So for me, the, it wasn't so much the, big muscles and all that, that really, um, kind of drove me with like, I guess, validation from other people. It was, it was really people that were like, Hey man, I see you've lost all this weight. That's awesome. Um, and people kind of acknowledging that what I had done, um, I saw it a lot from my family. I saw it a lot from classmates, teammates, stuff like that. And then they had also seen me go from primarily playing a um, offensive line position where I didn't do that much to um, going on to different positions because of that work I'd put in. So that itself gave me a lot of confidence. 
Um, in terms of confidence in other areas, it's hard for me to kind of go back and think what, I guess, what um, exact metrics I was looking at at the time. I mean, for me, it was just, I was just going, going after it. So, um, but it, it definitely instilled a lot of confidence from a work ethic side, a discipline side. Um, and I think that probably tracing back a lot of the things I do today probably stem from that. Yeah. Cool, man. Beautiful. Love it. Okay. So once you found training in high school, uh, were you then wanting to pursue something, uh, you know, in terms of maybe like personal training or physical therapy, strength, strength and conditioning? Like, were you starting to think about those type of careers in high school? Uh, and then once you graduated high school, did you kind of move in that direction immediately? Talk about college, talk about what you were thinking about doing in high school. And then is that kind of what you've followed through in terms of pursuing as an adult, Victor? Yeah, so I started to think about personal training after my personal transformation, right? I just come off of it. I'm like, I want to help other people do the same thing. Um, even if you go back in my high school senior yearbook, um, I got most athletic or I won some award and I had a quote that said, you know, go, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to go get my degree and I want to help people in the health and fitness world. Um, and that was really my goal at the time. And I really wanted to go into the personal training route. I didn't know much about the strength and conditioning route. I didn't know much about anything else. Um, but I just had seen personal training hands-on the most, just being in the gym, seeing other personal trainers do their thing. And it looked like a really cool job that I would have wanted to pursue. So going in, coming out of high school, I probably thought to myself, I'm actually going to get my exercise science degree so I can do personal training. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, now, when did you, uh, because I know you said it earlier at some point, because you were starting to look at uh, job opportunities or careers in strength and conditioning, you saw uh, that they were wanting at least like two years of college uh, sport experience in terms of playing it. And that kind of deterred you for a semester or two, you said earlier. Now, uh, what I want to know, though, is when did you kind of like realize like, hey, strength and conditioning in terms of training athletes is it, uh, is is actually a viable career. It's something that's, you know, out there. When did you, when did that come into your existence? When did you start thinking about that? Walk us through that, Victor. So it's actually funny. The other day I was going through TV and I saw something about Mike Barwis. Um, I don't know if you know who Mike Barwis is, but back around this pivotal time of my college career, I want to say maybe it might've even been high school. I'm not exactly sure, but he had a show that showed him training at professional athletes. It showed his daily, uh, what his days looked like training those athletes, the interactions. And I think that kind of sparked in me because I was just all personal training up to that point. I was like, Hey, I think training athletes is something I'd really like to do. Um, and so then I think from there, I kind of really decided to explore it more um, I've always been a college athletics fan. So I've always said to myself, like, Hey, it'd be really cool to be a strength and conditioning coach. So I started to really, those early college years, I started to dive into what the profession is and what it actually looks like. And I think kind of a side note here is that a lot of people fail to do that when they're coming into strength and conditioning. I think a lot of people see the glory of working with college athletes doing this, working with other athletes. And they're like, Hey, I want to do that. But 
do you know that you're going to have to do one to two years of unpaid internship experience? Do you know that you're going to have to do um, bachelor's and master's degree? And I really, it was pivotal for me to look up some of that stuff, just simple Google searches, right? Like what does it take to be a college strength and conditioning coach? Blah, 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 blah. And that's where I started to find out you know, they want you to have two years. I've seen a lot of people talk about how they want you to have two years of playing experience. So that's where it kind of deterred me a little bit. But um, early on, I really went down that rabbit hole of what does it take to do that? So that really played a big role in it. Okay. Now for some of the listeners that maybe uh, don't know, I would love to have you share with all of us, Victor, what does it take academically uh, speaking to become a uh, college strength and conditioning coach, because there are several hoops that you have to jump through. And uh, I would like you to kind of explain that to us. And while you were jumping through those hoops, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about like, what, what, what did you learn about yourself? You kind of already had the work ethic side of things through this transformation you went through in high school, but for me and most of us, I think college maybe isn't always necessary uh, for all careers. And, and I have my own perspectives on college in our country currently, but we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> but what I do believe is college is an opportunity for all of us or most of us to kind of get away from home, um, do some exploring uh, and, and, and really find, uh, you know, a, a new friend group. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, social aspects that I believe uh, college in our country is is, is really good for. Yep. Um, so what's the, what are the hoops you have to jump through to be a, a college strength and conditioning coach? And while you were going through those hoops or jumping through those hoops, what did you learn about yourself or what else did you gain in terms of that work ethic and hard work you already had uh, while going through this process? Yeah, so I'm actually going to start with more so what I've kind of what I learned going through some of these hoops and really because I think it would be a disservice to not mention that I know I mentioned I didn't play college sports but what I did mention was I worked a night shift job all the way through college to pay for it so I was in a really good I had a really good opportunity living in Louisville where um, UPS their massive world port is actually centered in Louisville so they hire night shift employees and they offer to pay your full tuition if you do so. If you make it all the way through, um, you won't have a dime of college debt. They do academic bonuses, all that. So it was an awesome opportunity for me because I didn't want to play college sports, but at the same time, I didn't want to have a massive debt load coming out. Um, And that in itself was probably another transformation point for me, probably as big as losing all that weight was. It was another massive transformation moment because I was going all four years and I would have work from midnight to 6 a.m. I would have 8 a.m. classes. So I had to figure out how to get a two-hour nap in, go to class and navigate situations like that. Um, Also, just I was working outdoors. So I was working in anything from 95 degrees to negative 30, I think was probably the coldest we worked in uh, wind chill wise. So learning how to navigate that as a college student was massive because I had already learned how to some, how to work hard in high school, but this was a completely different beast. How do you balance the 
schoolwork, the sleep deprivation, the everything pretty much you got going on, the social life, everything with that. So that was really a big piece for me all the way through college. Um, in terms of what it takes to be a strength and conditioning coach, you're looking at a four-year bachelor's degree in some capacity dealing with exercise, exercise science, kinesiology, um, something like that. And then you're looking at a two-year, one to two-year master's degree if you want to work, especially in the college realm. Um, if you do want to go kind of more of the private side, the master's isn't necessarily required depending on who you work for, if you start your own business, things like that. Um, but I also felt it was really important to get hands-on experience while in my undergrad. A lot of people will wait till they're done with undergrad to be like, hey, now I want to get my first internship get in that first internship as fast as you can. I did it my junior year. I actually worked at a private facility working with anywhere from middle school or elementary school kids to elementary school to high school kids. Um, some college athletes that would come in through the summer and things like that. I was there for a semester in the summer. Um, that was just a local private gym in my hometown of Louisville. And then I also interned at a division three college my last semester. So that would have been probably 2018 before I graduated. Um, got some real good hands-on experience in the division three world, which is a lot different than division one. So um, I was exposed to not only the private side, I was exposed to the college side as well. Um, and that was all before I got my four-year degree. So that was really important because it's the way they, Obviously, the baseline knowledge you learn in college is essential to any strength and conditioning coach, but the hands-on experience is completely invaluable to that because you have to learn how to communicate with people. You have to learn how uh, how to get to work on time. You, like All these things that seem so miniature are really big deals. So um, just being in those in two different environments in my undergrad was really big. Mm. Valuable uh, advice there, Victor, uh, and perspective. Now, talk to me about the CSCS because I know that's another uh, uh, test you have to pass and uh, hoop you have to jump through if you want to be a, a, a college strength and conditioning coach. And I even see uh, high schools now, uh, you know, are wanting people with a CSCS. So what is the CSCS and, um, you know, Talk to us a little bit about how important that is, because that's kind of the last step uh, if you want to get through certain strength and conditioning doors, so to speak. So touch on that, please. Yeah. So the CSCS um, is put together by the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Um, it is you are required to have a four year degree with it. So that's what kind of makes it a little bit tougher to obtain for some people if they don't go the college route. Um, you have to have a college degree. You have to, it has to be in, I think now it has to be in specific fields, um, whereas for a while it was, you could have any bachelor's degree and take it, but it's either the shift is happening soon or it already happened. I'm not exactly sure where you do have to have like an extra science, some type of physical, um, some type of physical degree that's closely related. Um, yeah, it's about a two to three hour test, all multiple choice, um, but it covers both exercise science and practical portions. So I would say both of them are pretty evenly split, but the exercise science, you're looking at more of like the 
chemi- like the biochemistry and of all that, of all the different systems, things like that. When you get into the practical, they're showing you videos of athletes training and they're pretty much at, Hey, what are they doing wrong? Um, they're telling you different exercise or they're showing you different exercises. Hey, can you correct this? What would you do programming wise? Stuff like that. So I did not take my CSCS until after undergrad because I had gone right after undergrad, I went to Gainesville, Florida, started working with the University of Florida in my first internship. And I actually spent four to five months there before I took my CSCS. I took my first couple months there to study, scheduled a date in, um, in December. So I got there in May of 2018. I took it into December of 2019 or 2018. Yeah, sorry. Um, but that was actually really important because the practical portion became that much easier getting another internship under my belt. So I could see and learn more from that side, right? The extra science portion is going to be a lot of what you learned in school. The practical side is what you're really going to gain from internships. So my recommendation to anybody kind of wanting to take the CSCS is get an internship position, get some type of position where you can get that hands-on practical experience before you take it because it's only going to help you on that test more. Um, so that was a big piece. And yeah, I mean, I think that's really the big things I took away from it. And then you just have to go get a certain amount of CEUs each year to uphold it. But really once you get past that test, that's really the big piece of it. And then it's pretty much maintaining it all the way through out the rest of your career. I will say another big certification I don't know if you've heard of is the is through the CSCCA it's I forgot the exact name of it but the it's the abbreviation is SCCC um that curriculum is a little bit different they actually have you write out a 12-week program for a on a team I don't know I don't think it's your choice I think they randomly assign you a team um you actually have to go to the CSCCA conference you have to demonstrate that you know how to do two or three really big foundational lifts and how you would coach it in front of a group of um, CSCCA mentors. So you actually have to show you can coach it. And then um, you actually, to get it, I think you have to have the four-year degree as well as a certain amount of hours under someone that is CSCCA certified. So um, those are the two big ones we see in college strength and conditioning. I personally only have the NSCA. There's some people that only have the other one. There's some people that have both, but um, one of those two are really going to be your help you get at least in the door of some of these uh, positions. Excellent. Now I want to talk a little bit here, Victor, before we start getting into some of your actual coaching experiences. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the private sector, and then uh, kind of being like in a, a, a public school setting in, in regards to strength and conditioning, because uh, a lot of the quote unquote uh, fitness type influencers that we'll see on social media are uh, more geared towards and they are more in the private sector, uh, even like, you know, Tim Grover, like he, he he's got his own thing. He had his own thing when he was training uh Michael Jordan and all those athletes, right? Uh, so that's one avenue that you kind of mentioned is the private sector. And you had some experience, uh, you know, during your undergrad with that. But then there's the, uh, you know, the working in like a public school or private school setting. Uh, so for you specifically, 
uh, why have you kind of chosen the route of, you know, being a strength and conditioning coach in, in, in the college setting, as opposed to the private. And do you ever see yourself if the right opportunity presented itself, maybe you would step into the private sector. Do you see yourself for the foreseeable future staying, uh, in the public, uh, the public sector in terms of, uh, colleges and things like that? Yeah, you know, really, I don't know exactly what shifted me more towards the college athletics realm at the time. Um, I'd had both the experiences in my in the private sector and college. Um, I think for me, just growing up wanting to play college sports, like even though I didn't get the opportunity or want it at the time, but I think just wanting to play college sports my entire life, growing up, watching um, all the big championships and stuff like that. It was just like a lure to me at that point. Um, and then when I took my first college internship, really my first big internship at the University of Florida, um, I was there for a year. And I think at that point, it really solidified that I want to be in college athletics because um, just the environment I was in, the learning environment, the professional environment I was in, and the steps I personally made as a coach in that process, I was like, okay, this is kind of where I want to be. Um, I think in the private, also for me, I would say that I like having, um, I'm able to map out training for longer periods of time. And I think that can be a challenge sometimes in the private sector, because I mean, as you know, like you have athletes come in, they might come in for a couple of weeks and you might not see them for a little bit. And then they come back in later down the road. So, um, and even one of my mentor at the private facility, I interned um, back in Louisville, you know, we had a conversation. He was asking me some programming stuff and I gave him my nice periodized idea. And he's like, that's cool, man. But like, I work with, I'll see these kids maybe two to three times and I won't see them again. So um really the way you program on the private side, I think is a lot different than the way you can program on the college side, um, which I just personally preferred the way you can with whether it's public high school, college, stuff like that. Um, but I think down the road, I'm not completely against going into private sector, right? Like I want to be in college athletics as long as I can. Um, but obviously if the opportunity presents itself, like I'm not, absolutely never going to the private sector. I'll also say like, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I don't know if it's good to say, but like, I don't know if I'm as big of an entrepreneur mindset as I'd want to be to be in the private sector. Um, like you, you work with college athletes and like, you always got freshmen, you always got sophomores and things like that. So um, that's definitely a factor too. I think you definitely have to be built for the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial lifestyle to, do that. Um, probably not one of my strong suits right now, but um, that's definitely all those kind of play big pieces in it. Cool. Cool, man. Love it. Okay. Now, uh, so, okay. So you're, you're from my, from my understanding, Victor, you got your uh, bachelor's degree in exercise science. And then what was your actual uh, master's degree in? So my master's degree was actually in sports administration. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So to kind of go back on that, I, I'll kind of go back to my concluding months at the University of Florida. I was actually in 
kind of like a middle ground of where I wanted to go. I guess I cross paths. Um, I'd been interning for a year. I was unpaid at the time, um, just kind of looking for my next gig. I knew I wanted to get my master's degree. So I really had two options. I could have gone back to the University of Louisville where I had a full tuition graduate assistantship in exercise science where you're doing more of the academic side. You're doing the research. You're doing the, you know, teaching a class part-time, things like that. And at the time, like I said, I was at a cross paths. I was like, that actually sounds kind of nice because the big thing for me is to get my master's. So my thought was, yeah, I could veer off a little bit, but at the same time, um, I'll, I'll be able to get back into the college realm because I have my internship experience. Um, and then at the last second, an opportunity came at the University of Memphis, a uh, full paid graduate assistantship as well. So once again, I'm already on board or I'm already interested because it's a, my next big goal was getting that degree. So um, from there, they had different programs at Memphis, but they had a sports administration program that was all online. And the job demands of the graduate assistantship was to work with four or five different teams. So you were going to be working with 50, 60 athletes. If you went the exercise science route, you'd have to go to class. You'd have to do this. You'd have to do all that. But with the sports administration side, it was you can get a lot of time on the floor training athletes and getting better as a strength and conditioning coach. But at the same time, you can kind of get that sports administration degree online at a different pace so you're able to give more to um you're actually developing as a strength and conditioning coach now i'm not saying anyone is right or wrong um but i chose it because of that i wanted to get my master's but i also didn't want to lose touch with the coaching side and spend all my time in a classroom in a lab so that was big for me and also figured having a sports administration degree i'd already had my extra science degree in my bachelor's so sports administration might actually open more doors down the road if I get 30, 40 years into it. And I do want to go into some administrative role, right? Like I think, I think having that diversity in my education could actually be a skill set or a valuable tool down the road. So that's why I wasn't just drawn to it had to be exercise science or kinesiology. Mm. Smart man. Love it. Okay. Now, um, let's start talking about, uh, so I want to kind of pick up where you mentioned you had an opportunity to go to the University of Florida and you did an unpaid internship there. And then it sounds like you had your uh, uh, GA at uh, the University of Memphis. Yep. Um, so let's start with Florida. And then if, if Memphis was the second one, uh, let's talk about that. And then once you got your master's degree, like I want to start knowing about uh, where you've been in terms of like actually uh, strength and conditioning, like what schools have you been at? How did you get to Mississippi State? Like, let's start uh, unpacking, Victor, the professional side of things, starting with uh, that unpaid uh, opportunity at the University of Florida, please. Yeah, so you might ask, how did I end up at the University of Florida when I was a uh, <laughs> born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky? Right. Like it's kind of random. So I'll start there. Um, I grew up actually, I know this sounds funny, is I grew up as a Florida Gator fan. So I'm like, what if I applied for this University of Florida internship? And I mean, I knew they were killing it, absolutely killing it in other sports, too. So um, obviously their track program, like all their sports, I think they just 
won or they just announced that they'd won a national championship in every single sport since 2019 or something crazy like that. So um, I really, as a guy right out of undergrad, I'm like, yeah, let me just go work at Florida because I grew up a Florida fan. So um, I reached out to Matt Delancey, who is still um, on staff there working with a bunch of different sports and pretty much sent him hey, I'm getting out of undergrad. I want a chance to come learn um, from some great people. And he brought me in. Um, he allowed me to work under him. I worked with all of his sports and even some of the other sports as well. So during my time, my main sports were volleyball, swimming and diving, track and field, um, and any other sports that I could help out with, whether it was soccers, lacrosse, things like that. Um, when I started my internship, I was still super new. Like my, I probably made so many mistakes those first three to four months, not even from like a technical, like ability side, just even from like a professionalism side, like things you just don't learn sometimes in college. Um, like when to ask questions, how to ask the right questions, um, things like that. So I really had to grow as an individual those first couple months to uh, get rolling the right way. But also being unpaid, my fiance that I'm, um, she moved with me from Louisville. We met in high school. Um, she found a job in Gainesville, but I was still unpaid. So I was working probably 10 to 12 hours a day at the University of Florida, but then I also had a gym job at the um, at night, probably three to four days a week. And looking back, like that paycheck probably didn't help us much, but it was something. Um, so it was tough kind of balancing all of the internship duties with the work in the part-time job. Um, once again, that kind of just helped me uh, continue to work on my work ethic and make sure I really wanted to do this thing because it was going to be tested. So, but really with strength, the big thing I learned early on at the University of Florida that I think has been so valuable to me now is how simple training can be. Mm. Um, you see the Instagram influencers of the world, like you talked about, they're doing super complex training exercises um, all the time. And you don't really have any context to why or what they're doing. Whereas, so that was my expectation going in. I'm like, these athletes are killing it. These teams are killing it. They're going to be doing some crazy, awesome, like exercises, stuff like that. But then you get there and it's like, no, nope, they, they squat, they hinge, they push, they pull, they leave. So, um, yeah, that was really eye opening for me. And I even take that kind of into my, like my professionalism or my job now, because I see people go down the rabbit hole so many times of trying to make things more advanced um, and things like that, when maybe you just need to simplify the playbook a little bit. Maybe you need to get better at those really simple movements because I've seen it work at the highest level. Um, so learning how simple training really can, should be, um, learning the X's and O's of programming, right? Seeing how four or five different coaches in a university program for their teams. I wasn't just learning from one. I was learning from four or five that are all in the same uh, weight room. So they were all very open, willing to share their philosophies, things like that. And then another thing I think that I look back now and didn't realize how valuable it was, but I think just being in that, once again, going back to winning, that winning environment where every sport was kind of high level, 
you had coaches that were high level. You had, you know, you're working with Olympic athletes day in and day out and just being a young intern, seeing how the coach, the coaches habits, how they interact with even whether it's a freshman or an Olympic athlete, like all those small things. I didn't realize until two years down the road, like that made a maybe as big or a bigger impact on me than it did learning the X's and O's of strength and conditioning. Um, so I think that was really valuable for me. And those are really the two to three big takeaways I took from the university of Florida. Mm. Um, and from there, like I told you earlier, that kind of be where your feet are and let the rest take care of itself. One of my mentors at Florida who I worked under, but not as much, his name's Paul. Um, he's actually the director at Florida now, but you know, he had reached out or somebody had reached out to him from the University of Memphis looking for someone to fill a graduate assistantship role. That was actually a brand new position. This was going to be the first GA position at Memphis. They were reaching out to him because they knew him. He knew me. He knew my work ethic. He knew what I was about. So he said, hey, I got this guy who might be interested. We get connected. We I go to the University of Memphis. I start my GA um, there. And that's kind of how that got rolling. Um, I don't know if you want me to keep going on the Memphis route or if you have any questions about that, what I just unpacked for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me let's unpack a couple things here, Victor, and then we'll 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 work past uh, uh Memphis. Now, um, the first thing I want to ask you, you mentioned uh, you know, you're you're this uh, you know, college kid, and you're like, hey, like I was always a Florida fan. Why don't I just reach out to them? Let's 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 just go for it. See what happens. I, I first of all, I love that mindset because um, what's the worst they're gonna say? No. I mean, who cares? The exactly. best that's gonna happen is they're gonna say yes, and yeah. that's what happened for you. But what I want, so uh, especially once you start getting into uh, legit Power Five D one schools uh, in terms of of working, uh, there's a. Perf- there's a professional side of all of this, right? Like there's a certain way that you have to approach uh, uh, people. There's a, there's a certain professionalism that you have to carry yourself uh, by and with, like, there's just a certain way that you have to, you have to do it if you want to get where you want to go when you start getting into legit D one schools and whether that's being a professor or a strength and conditioning coach or, you know, athletic trainer, like, you know, you start getting into the, 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 the quote unquote, uh, you know, uh, real world, like there's a uh, real professionalism that you have to demonstrate. So with that being said, I want to touch on this, this reaching out. Um, I, I feel like so many people are afraid to quote unquote, reach out. Uh, that's what we see with Tim Grover. He just reached out. He sent those letters, probably didn't expect anything to happen. And Michael Jordan wanted wanted to meet with him and the rest is history. And I keep going back to that because I love, I love Tim Grover's story. It's just yeah. it's so powerful. Right. And it obviously it correlates to uh, um, where you're at professionally and what we're talking about today. But the question I want to ask and, and what I want to, uh, you know, gain from you and glean from you, Victor, is um, how does somebody professionally reach out uh, so that they might have an opportunity to to get a, a a position or job. And again, this can be strength and conditioning. This can be teaching. This can be whatever profession you're pursuing. You have to take the right steps in order to to, to get at least a foot in the door. 
Yep. How do you do that? Uh, how, how do you professionally reach out to somebody so they might give you an opportunity? They might give you an interview. Yeah. So I think number one is take, make sure you take care of the small details, right? Like make sure you know who you're reaching out to, make sure you know what position that person holds, make sure you know, like if you can, like anything you can know about that person before you reach out, figure it out in terms of what they do on a day-to-day basis. Now, like with most schools, strength and conditioning wise, they'll put what sports they work with on their webpage, but sometimes they don't. And um, now I'm not saying go down eight different rabbit holes to find out what sports they work with, but if they have their sports listed, make sure you know what sports they work with um, just so you can get a general idea. And then be professional in the way you talk to them. This is not like, Hey, what's up, man. I just wanted to come to an internship. It's, you know, address them professionally hey, Mr. So-and-so, coach so-and-so, like, um, state who you are, like, what you're trying to do, where you're at, and um, I guess what kind of makes you different than somebody else just randomly reaching out. Um, I've actually read, it's a great book by Alex Bonian called The Third Door. I don't know if you've read that one, but they talk about how to cold email somebody, especially someone in, like, a very higher-up position, um, and they kind of go over some of these things. Um, you know, you don't want to bore them with eight different, an eight page document of why you want to intern there. You want to keep it short and sweet, get your message across. But I think for me, like one thing I always did, and I don't know if people do it is just double checking your email before you send it, like check the grammatical errors, check to make sure you're not talking like you would in person, because that's something I even have to go back and catch myself on now is I'll throw in words like, filler words pretty much that you use in conversation. I have to put those in emails and I have to go back. It just messes up with your clarity and things like that. So you want to come off as clear, professional as possible. Um, I usually stick with email. I know Instagram has been a big one recently where people just reach out on Instagram. Um, That's usually a red flag. I feel like for most people, Um, you're not going to get them by text message. So I would just stick with email. And then I think giving them time to respond, don't blow up their email 10 times. I was lucky. I was fortunate when I sent that reach out email to the University of Florida, they got back pretty quick. Um, But even if they didn't, right, I wasn't going to send an email every single day. Like weekly um, is probably a safe bet, maybe a little bit longer than a week, Um, just kind of played out. But I think those are kind of the big stones, at least for me, on how to properly reach out to someone you might not have met or someone you're trying to get in the door with. Love that, man. Uh, so for the younger listeners, maybe out there, don't, don't reach out uh, and start off with uh, calling a coach or somebody a uh, bro, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you, we laugh about it, right. But I've seen it over. Oh, and I'm sure. Over man. Over I'm sure. And it's, yeah. it's just such simple things that you can, because first reputations are everything or first, first personations are everything. So, um, if you send, Hey bro, like you might burn your bridge to get in that door right away because of that. Like you might be a great coach, a great human being, but something that small can throw you off the wagon. So, um, it's very, just take all that kind of out of it and just make sure your email is good to go before sending it out. Yeah, man, we are, uh, we're living in a crazy world. I could only imagine some of the emails, uh, some of you guys get when people are reaching <laughs> out, but, uh, it would drive me nuts, man. Cause I'm, I'm like you, it's like, even when I'm sending like a, 
a, a text, right? Like I, I don't care if it's my mom. I don't care if it's to, you know, uh, a, a member of the gym that I own or a, a training client. Like I, I make sure before I send a text, I send an email. Even when I reach out to random people like you, Victor, through Instagram to invite you onto the podcast, uh, I, I double check before I send anything because it's just a small little thing that I believe speaks volumes about um, how much you care, how professional you are. And, and if somebody reaches out to me and says, hey, bro, like, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm, I'm just I'm going to move on. I don't I don't have time for that because you are immediately saying I don't have the time to check my my grammar or I just don't really care. Like, so we're, we're going to move on. So, yeah, uh, great, great uh, words of uh, wisdom there, Victor. Now, one other thing I want to touch on is uh the, the division one side of things, right? So uh, I played uh, one year of division three football. Uh, I've trained uh, division two uh, basketball players, female basketball players. And um, I've never had an opportunity to train. Uh, and I'm speaking like, you know, strength and condition training, uh, a division one athlete, right? I've never been at a division one school and been in that environment. I can only imagine the difference between D3, D2, uh, and D1 athletes and, and just the environment. Can you speak to that? Because you said you worked a little bit with D3 uh, in your undergrad, and there was a big difference, you said, from D3 to D1. So talk about the athlete difference, the environment difference, maybe even the professionalism difference, um, because I've never been in that experience personally, um, and I would love to hear your perspective on that, Victor. Yeah, so just really what I gained from my Division three experience was seeing the way the athletes interact with coaches, the way athletes treat the sport. Because, I mean, you have to think about Division three athletes. Like, a lot of time they're not on big or any scholarship for the most part. Like, they're playing because they love it. Um, and so, like, all the training they do is, I mean, it's not voluntary, but it's at the same time, like, they're treating it different. They're not – not always necessarily trying to go professional, but they want to do well with the sports that they're playing now and they want to have a great time. So um, usually, I mean, I was only there for a semester, but like the athletes do work really hard. Um, but I'm sure there are some athletes that they, they're not on scholarship. They're kind of hanging out. They're kind of cruising, which can make it kind of tough. Um, once again, I didn't deal with many of those in my division three experience, but at the same time, um, I'm sure there are some out there that you have to work with. But um, at the Division One level, really, I, I don't know if it's so much the division that will differentiate the athletes. I think it's really the way they're, they've been cultured to go about training and how they go about themselves, right? Like, you have some athletes that – they really want to, or they've been so good at sports for so long, they've been treated a certain way all the way up until they get to you. So they want to call, they might want to call the shots in terms of what they do, how they do things. But then also you have the athletes at Division One that weren't given much, had to work for every single thing they got, um, and they're willing to come in and do anything, anything for you, no questions asked. Like, let's just go. Um and so I think the fun part of, you know, being a college strength and conditioning coach is getting everybody on the same page. Um, 
I think there's a lot of opportunity coaching wise, like even the ones that aren't really for the weight room and think they don't really need it. There's a really good teaching opportunity there. Um, and kind of, it, it's not going to happen verbally. Like you're going to need to ha- build those relationships, but you're going to have to show some results too. Um, and like, I mean, I've been fortunate to work with athletes who at first don't really like the weight room, but then they kind of see what it can do for performance. And they're like, Oh wow, this can actually make me a lot better. Um, and then, I mean, just, I think those are really the big ones. Um, and then just for me, I try to take, I try to make it to where, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're going to go on to be an Olympic athlete or if you're only wanting to play four years of college sports and then you want to move on to another professional or career not in athletics, that's fine. But um the treatment and the goals aren't going to necessarily change. You know, I think once again, if you have an Olympic caliber athlete, it'd be easy to get wrapped in like, Hey, we need to get them ready for this, this, and this down the road, but Hey, we're trying to make them a really big contributing piece for our program right now. Um, So once again, it kind of goes back to that, getting them on the same page of being where your feet are. Um, If you have professional goals also, Mike, we'll talk about that. Like, we can talk about that, but um, at the same time, um, just kind of staying where your feet are and trying to teach athletes to think that way as well. Excellent, man. Okay, so after Memphis, uh, where did you go professionally in terms of strength and conditioning? Well, so I did my graduate assistantship the first year at the University of Memphis, so 2019 to 2020, finished my grad program in a year, and then one of the strength coaches on staff, uh, one of my mentors left for another university. So then there was only me and the director on staff. So I moved into a, out of my graduate assistant role because I was done with school and I wasn't gonna get another degree just to keep my graduate assistantship. Um, They moved me into what was called a fellowship role, which was a little bit higher pay than a GA, still not a crazy amount by any means, but, and obviously you're not in school anymore. So when I started as a GA, my main sports that I had in program for were cross country. I had men's tennis, women's tennis, and I think those were really the big three. Um, that gave me about an athlete load of, I mean, 50 to 60 athletes. I was coming off my internship. It was a really good opportunity to learn and grow, but also I would help other coaches on staff. So I worked with every single sport at Memphis in my time there, minus football and basketball, because they were in their own world. But um, so I really just helped. I had my own teams, but helped with the others. And then after my fellowship ended, or after my graduate assistant ended, sorry, I moved and took over our assistant that left. I took over his teams. I had my team. So now I had an additional women's soccer, baseball, men's soccer, and then all my other ones, cross country, tennis. So I was looking at a team load of about seven to eight uh, or around seven. Um, So that was a really crazy chaotic time, but it was also very valuable because I had to learn how to coach a lot of athletes in a really small amount of time. I didn't have a lot of extra time for myself. Like I did probably more so at the uh, graduate, graduate assistantship role. Um, and then, so I finished my, my fellowship was from early 2021 to uh, probably the summer 
that same summer. So I was in that role for about five or six months. Then our director actually ended up leaving. So at this point, I was the only single person on staff. Um, so I'm coming straight off a fellow role. I'm like, all right, now I'm the only person in this department. Luckily, it was summer. So there weren't many athletes in. I had a chance to kind of like decompress and figure out what was going to go on. They were in the hiring process. They were going to bring in two other individuals, both a director and another assistant. Um, so as summer went, they did eventually go on to hire director Nick Higgins. He, I had to go through the interview process to get moved into a full-time role. Um, but I did get moved on to a full-time role as an assistant. We brought in another assistant, John Grundy. So now we had a staff of three full-time members. Um, whereas in the past, they only had two full-times. So now we had three. I had my first full-time role in a school that I'd already been for two two years at that time. So that was actually very beneficial for me because usually you go into your first full-time role, not knowing any athletes, not knowing any coaches, how things operate. I had seen everything operate for two years before I even got to that full-time role. So um, that really helped me. It helped me also kind of bring those two other guys on board. Um, even though like it was a director and another assistant, I could kind of help them with the ins and outs of how the school works, things like that. So uh, made me more valuable in that regard. Um, but then after, so my first full-time role, I actually dropped a couple teams because we resorted teams and I actually ended up having women's soccer, men's tennis, um, the jumpers and pole vaulters from track and field and cross country. So I still had four teams, um, but overall the workload was better and we were able to better serve those athletes having three full-time staff members. So that's where I was all the way up from all the way until March of this year um, is when I left for Mississippi State. So I was in that role for a little about a year, year and a half as a full-time member. And then um, just recently got the job here back in March. Okay. Why don't, let's talk about uh, Mississippi State, how that opportunity came to be. And then um, I, we'll wrap up with a few more questions that I, that I kind of want to uh, you know, ask you from some of the information you've given us up to this point. So um, talk about the Mississippi State opportunity um, and uh, then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with a few questions uh, at that point, Victor. Yeah, so it's really a funny story is, and I, I still laugh about it because as a someone pursuing college strength and conditioning, you apply for so many jobs. You apply for like, just you put your name into any position that, you possibly can. You see them come up on the strength coach job board and you're like, yep, let's go. Um, another one, just as you're in those fellow, those entry level roles, you're like, I just want my first full-time job. Um, and I had a full-time job, but what's weird is like, as you go, I guess the power five schools, right? Like they talk about how hard it is to get in the door. They talk about, you know, I've had, I've heard power five director, strength and conditioning director say, you know, when I post a job, I have 150 applicants. What's going to set you apart? Um, so what was funny about this one is this one at Mississippi State, my mentor at Memphis, who I told you had left originally, he was an assistant. He took a director job at Georgia Southern, but then he got a job with Mississippi State Baseball. So, I mean, me and him were always close, just kind of keeping that. Um, we had grown really close at Memphis, so um, kept that relationship strong, even when he was in Georgia Southern. Um, and then when he got the job at Mississippi State, he was like, you know, I'd really like to see you come to Mississippi State at some point. 
And, you know, there was this kind of just opportunity because a staff member here left. Um, my mentor, Scott, put in a good word for me with the director here. And then pretty much I went through this process where I was the only applicant. So, I mean, it was kind of like an emergency hire, a lot of, a lot of luck involved, but it was kind of a culmination of, you know, everything I talked about before, just building relationships with those that you can now. And you just never know who's watching. You never know how one relationship might pan out down the road. Um, Because I never, you know, just when I was a GA, a fellow in the grind at Memphis, I never saw a world where like that relationship right there would lead to this job two years down the road. So um, I think that was the biggest takeaway is you try to apply for jobs, apply for jobs, apply for jobs. And then the one you probably, the one that's best for you kind of comes out of nowhere if you put in the work and you kind of trust your own process. So Mm -hmm. What uh, sports uh, teams are you uh, overseeing at uh, Mississippi State or working with, Victor? Yeah, so I have women's soccer, men's golf, and women's golf. So I have an athlete load of about 45, 50 athletes. Um, And, I mean, that's kind of been an adjustment itself, just kind of going from a higher athlete load in Memphis to less teams overall here. And I joke, like, I was at Memphis, I was spending – especially in my GA fellowship time, I was spending so many hours on the floor. Um, and then I still had a higher team load those la- that last year and a half. But with uh, Mississippi State, you only have three teams. So you become busy in other areas. It's not always coaching on the floor. It's more of the administrative stuff. You're doing a lot more with sports science. You're doing a lot more with all of the pieces that go into a team rather than just being on the floor all the time. So for the first couple of week, probably about a month or so, I was like, man, I just feel so unproductive. Um, it was just such a change of pace, but it was a good lesson for me is that, you know, progression over time and uh, productivity doesn't always mean you're on the floor. It's, you know, as you kind of move up, up and up and up, you get different responsibilities, different roles that require different skill sets. So um, it's just being open-minded to that, adaptable to that. Um, and going about it that way. Mm. Okay. Um, wrapping up here, I want to, I want to touch on a few things that you've mentioned, uh, as you're sharing your story, uh, Victor. Now, uh, I want to go back to, uh, basically keeping things simple. You said that earlier when you got to Florida, you're, you're, you're thinking, Hey, like they're going to be doing some, uh, crazy movements and complex stuff. And it was, you know, the, the squats, the, the, the benches, uh, pushing, pulling, basic, simple stuff. So I want to kind of know uh, from your perspective, how how does somebody keep it simple in the weight room as a strength and conditioning coach? Because I'm on the exact same uh, perspective as you. Simple is better, especially when it comes to to, uh, strength training. Um, It's all about progression in my estimation. Uh, So what does that kind of look like? The simplicity of strength and conditioning. And then do you specifically kind of have your own philosophy of how you want to train your athletes or are you still in the process of developing that philosophy or are you kind of an open book and you kind of uh, use different philosophies or just kind of work what's best with 
the athletes that are right in front of you. Can you touch on that, please? Yeah. So I think in terms of keeping it simple, I used to spend hours and hours and hours programming some of the most like my miniature things you can think of, like the accessory exercises, not even the big exercises, like the accessory work. I would just spend hours and hours um, even after coming from Florida. Right. So this is me still battling that trying to advance things when I probably don't need to. Um, but for me, I think about for every strength session, if it's a, you know, if it's a total body lift, are they getting some type of Olympic or power variation? It doesn't even have to be like an Olympic clean or a snatch. It can be some type of explosive med ball throw or something like that. Are they getting some type of squat variation? Whether it's for me, it can be a back squat, front squat, trap bar, deadlift, something like that. Um, are they getting an upper body push in a pool? Are they getting um, a, another lower body accessory, a hinge? So for me, that's like a Romanian deadlift. Um, I like to prioritize single leg as, as well. So are they getting some type of lunge work in, step up, lateral lunge, single leg RDL, um, and exercises like that, and then core. So those five to six exercises are going to be a staple for me. Now, you can't just do those if you have a big, massive team, right? You can't just do those five exercises because athletes are going to get stagnant. They're going to be moving, uh, motivation, effort's going to drop. So for me, those are my core exercises. And then I kind of build out the other ones based on what I need in terms of flow of the room, what I have equipment wise, things like that. So like if we do my squat variation, that's the one I really want. Maybe we pair it up with a plank or maybe we paired up with like a plank and a isometric glute bridge. I don't know, but you can get other things in there, but have those core five to six exercises that you want that you really think are going to be the most bang for your buck. If you don't, if you have those, then everything else is kind of extra icing on the cake. Um, and you know, that changes based on how many times a week your teams are training and all that. But I think that's a good, just general thing to think about is when you're going down those rabbit holes of, do I need to do this extra, do this extra? Like, okay, I have those five, six exercises. I'm good. Now let's just see where I can add in a little bit more um, in that regard. Now, obviously the more advanced the athlete, those advanced training protocols do have some merit down the road because they're just, they've done simple, um, they've done kind of general strength training so long they do, they might need some different power methods, things like that. And those have their place, but I feel like people get to that way too fast. Like I saw that with some of the Olympic athletes at, um, Florida. I had a couple athletes at Memphis that you're like, okay, they really need to focus on like the more power based, more specific stuff. Um, and then here as well, there's a handful, right. But there are, like you just have some of these training ages that are so low because they've played their sports so much um, and haven't focused on the training side that we just really jumped that gun, I feel like, way too fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and sorry, what was the question you asked after that? My training philosophy? Yeah, no, that, that's you're you're good. You 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 covered it. You're good, Victor. <laughs> okay. Um let's let's go a little bit deeper with uh, what you just said because this is something uh that um kind of fires me up in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they have these athletes and just because they're uh, 
let's say a full scholarship division two athlete or they're a they're a full scholarship division one athlete. It's like, okay, they step in the weight room. Uh, they, 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 they've, they've already been lifting for, you know, five or six years. Like, let's just, let's just, let's get after it, Right. And I'm like, okay, timeout. We need to find out actually if this division one athlete has ever lifted weights. Cause I'm sure there's people probably still that are coming to Mississippi state, depending upon what sport that have never really lifted weights in high school. Because like you said, if they're, if they're a basketball player, basketball in high school now is a 24, seven, 365 job. You've got AAU, even the division two girls that I've trained, like literally they never stop. Uh, Victor, they play their four, uh, three or four sports during the school year. And then all summer it's AAU basketball. Okay. I mean, it, it blows my mind how it's just like, it's nonstop. It's constant. So like you said earlier, uh, when they come to the gym to, to lift, dude, it's very basic. It's very simple. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's very minimal because like, dude, like their bodies are so beat already. They, they've never really been taught how to lift properly at the local high school. So it's just like, man, how can we get the blood flowing? How can we kind of meet them right where they're at? So how do you kind of take these athletes at the division one level and decipher, okay, this one needs a little bit more advanced work. This one's never even lifted weight. So they need to actually be taught how to properly do a back squat. This one's maybe had a little foundation. Like how, how do you do that? Because uh, you guys have like what, 60 minutes, maybe 75 minutes in the weight room. You're cycling through five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, all these different athletes, male, female, like there's a lot going on. So how do you decipher? How do you balance that? Um, talk to me about that because that's something that just gives me anxiety. If I was in your position, I, I don't think I could do what you guys do uh, as a strength and conditioning coach at a school like that, because I like the one-on-one -on -one or the one-on-two. Like you get more than two for me. It's like, I, I can't see it. I can't watch it. I, I can't help them the way I want to help them. So talk about that, Victor. Yeah. So I think sports science has made this a lot easier to identify these things over time. Like, um, like obviously if you come into a situation and you have athletes that are absolutely killing it on some of these performances, maybe it's speed maybe it's jump height, things like that. They can give you like an early maybe kind of flag to say like, hey, this athlete might be one of the more advanced or one that's way below. Um, but I think for me, like I still I'm so reliant on the coach's eye, right? Like when I come in, when an athlete comes in very ver first phase of an all season block, I don't it doesn't matter if you're soccer. It doesn't matter if you're golf. We're doing slow tempo exercises. We're going to have no weight on the bar, maybe a little bit. Um, you can have whatever weight on the bar as long as you can keep the tempo and as long as technique looks good, right? If you're shifting side to side, I'm going to tell you, we're going to take weight off, but establishing good movement patterns in that first one to two blocks is essential, I think, before building an athlete up. They could have been the most powerful, most athletic athlete the semester before, in their season at the end of their season, which is what you want. That's awesome. But when you come back to day one, we have to reset and maybe they're an advanced athlete. So they might progress faster. They might be able to use a little bit more weight than your person. That's a little bit behind, but the focus for everyone's going to be the same reestablish movement patterns, 
get some general capacity work training under our belt. Um, and then we will build up from there and kind of linear fashion in that off season period. But um, I think that's really important because at that time, when you really slow things down, athletes know exactly what you're looking for. They can kind of coach each other on it. And I think that is also huge for big group lifts. Like you said, you can't see everything. So really telling or teaching your athletes to hold each other accountable to things like whenever we come in and we have a phase where we're doing four second eccentrics on squats, right? If we have a big group, they're counting for each other. They're watching each other. I'm correcting technique as we go along. Um, but them counting for each other makes it to where I don't have to sit in the front of the room and count, but also to where I can go around and coach. So the environment and the culture that you do with that is very important. Um, but I think that's real. I think that's really it, right? Like just always not being afraid to go back to the basics, right? Because once again, I've seen this at the highest level, no matter how good of an athlete they are, they always at some point when their season is done, come back to square one. So I think that's how you have to approach it, or at least that's how I approach it in my day to day with my teams and athletes. Okay. Uh, how do you build rapport with uh, uh, the athletes? How do you connect with them? Um, we're living uh, in an interesting day and age. You are coaching through COVID. Uh, you know, every 10 or 15 years, there's a, a different generation that kind of uh, comes to be with uh, just a, a, a different way of being, a different way of talking. We just, we mentioned bro earlier when when these younger athletes and uh, clients of mine call me bro, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not your bro. Don't call me that. But uh, exactly. you get my point, right? Like there, there's constantly a, a change in our culture with, uh, with, 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 with people, with, with the next generation. So how do you cultivate uh, those relationships? How do you build that rapport? How do you build that culture that you just mentioned in terms of providing an environment where uh, the athletes want to do the work uh, for you, for themselves, for, uh, for each other, for uh, the university that they're representing? Yeah, so I think I, early on when I used to have, had to have had these conversations with athletes, like they they might question something you're doing, right? And it's not like they're coming at you from a bad place. They just want to know generally, like, why are we doing this? And I think early on, you try to give super scientific answers. You try to really buy them over with the knowledge and the terminology that you know. But I think over time, it's just being true to the coach, the coaching experiences you've had and the results you've seen with what you're doing. Like, you know, talk to them about why you go back to square one, not from the scientific literature side, but from your side. Um, I think that really helps um, in terms of that. And I think just, once again, I think you just have to give it time, I guess. You just can't force it on somebody at once. I think also the social media is just making it a little bit tougher. I've had a lot of conversations where it starts with, I saw on TikTok X, <laughs> this, this, and this, right? So um, I think the big thing is just staying true to your coaching style, your philosophy. Cause then if you start spitting out other people's coaching philosophy, and then you don't program that and live by that, then there becomes that disconnect, right? You, um, and that will hurt that trust dynamic. Now, I think you just, I think you always need to be willing to adapt that coaching philosophy. Um, you know, I take extensive notes on every single training block that, 
I do with a team, the exercises we do, the tempos we've done, and I see how it pans out months, weeks, months down the road. And if there's things I didn't like, I'll tweak it the next time um, or go from there. So I think being true to who you are as a coach when you're telling them that, but also not being afraid to update, update your coaching software, I guess. Um, and athletes see that too, right? If athletes see that they're doing the same program year in, year out, then they're probably going to think like, Hey, what are we doing? Like, are we, you want your athletes to evolve, but also you need to evolve as well. And you need to show them that you're taking those steps to do so. Yeah. Do you, uh, do, do you guys allow cell phones, uh, in the weight room or is that like a huge no, no with, with where you guys are at? Um, there's no rules here regarding the cell phones. Um, I think it's more of a coach by coach basis. Some coaches are absolutely no phones, leave them upstairs. Others are, you can have them on you, but don't use them. Um, when I was at Memphis, we actually ever had everybody use their cell phones because we used the app uh, called Team Builder to log all training and things like that. And that was actually beneficial. Um, but the expectation is always, you know, you're on Team Builder for that. You're not on Instagram. And really with the big teams and if you, depending on how the room operates, it's usually pretty to, easy to tell who's doing what they're supposed to and who's not. Um, so even if my, I don't know if my athletes have their phones on the floor, if they have them in their pocket, I think most of them don't. But, um, I think the big thing is when you're engaged in the training process and you're going through the lift, like there shouldn't be a lot of time to even be on your phone. So, I mean, I think of everybody bought into what we're doing and everybody on the same page, the, the lift kind of flows itself and you don't really have to worry about people on their phones. Okay. We're going to, we're going to wrap it up, Victor. I want to ask you uh, in terms, I, I, and I, again, I know you're uh, uh, kind of like uh, be where your feet are. That's kind of uh, something that you've mentioned several times. So I, I respect that and understand that, but um, I'm sure you, you look ahead at least a little bit uh, for yourself and you said that you're uh, engaged. So um, that's obviously a responsibility there, but um what, what would you like to accomplish? I'll ask it this way. What would you like to accomplish or what would you like to be remembered for? I know you're just getting started out, but all of us, you know, when we're working with younger people, when we're helping other people chase their dreams, like we, we think about, man, like, I, I hope I just have some sort of impact on, on this person or that person, right. At some point. So, um, what type of impact, uh, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like to accomplish as a strength and conditioning coach? Um, in the years to come? For me, I think, I don't know if there's a set destination I would have. I think just within where, I, once again, kind of where I'm at, I think it's, have I, do I grow? Do I evolve each year is a kind of a first immediate goal that's going to be kind of ever, ever evolving. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of accomplishments, like, I just really want to help these athletes maximize their potential. Right. And that's, I mean, that requires a lot. It requires you to once again, look at each individual athlete and maybe we, I mean, you have to be willing to once again, upgrade your training philosophy, upgrade everything like that to make sure your teams are not just doing the same program year in year out because they might not maximize their potential that way. Um, I am a super competitive guy, so I do want to be, 
and the with the winning teams, right? Like I want teams to be able to win and hold their own um, in terms of competition, right? I like teams that are mentally tough, right? Like I, it's big for me as a strength and conditioning coach to watch kind of the closing maybe half or maybe the last 10 to 15 minutes of anything we play, right? Like when I worked with tennis, I would look at how many three set matches did we win and soccer, like how many goals, like, how are we, how do we look at minute 85, minute 90? Are we bent over? Are we dying, like gassed out? Um, and then just kind of really building that culture around that, um, building around the philosophy that, we're going to work hard, right? I feel like a lot of the professional, there's a lot of things in the professional athlete world, like a lot of documentaries that really highlight what professional athletes are doing in season where it looks like a lot of not so hard training. They, they record them when they're in like a maintenance phase. So it looks like to athletes, like they're not training that hard. But um, for me, it's about teaching athletes that like, we're going to train hard, it's going to help you. We're going to do hard things. Um, and seeing that culture kind of build into what they do on the field, on the court, things like that. So I think if I can, in terms of accomplishments, if I can help them do that, to be in a position to do well in their sport and kind of change their mindset about doing hard things, I think that's a really a big win on my, on my end. Hey, last question. Uh, what does Coach Victor like to do for fun? Or what are you doing outside of the weight room and the life of a strength and conditioning coach at the uh, Division One level? <laughs> um, so I know this is probably an answer you get a lot, but like I know people say, you know, if you're training outside of work, you're not actually getting away from work. I actually do enjoy training outside of work. So I'm a big endurance um, endurance guy. I've run ultra marathons, regular marathons, stuff like that. And those are kind of like, it's kind of like my getaway, I guess. Um, being able to just kind of go out on a five, six mile run every couple of days and you kind of filter through thoughts that way and do that. But um, from the training aspect, like I said, a big running guy, um, love to hang out with my fiance. We and her both love the small town. So Starkville has been awesome. Um, and then reading, looking into podcasts, things like that. They're always kind of feeding into my free time, right? Because I love free time, but I also feel like I like to do things that mentally engaging, physically engaging. And that's when I really feel my best. Like some people love to go sit on the beach and sit there all day. And they're like, yep, that's my vacation. And for me, like, I, I just got to be moving. I got to be doing something mentally, physically engaging. So that's my ideal fun. All right, man. Um, Victor, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast, man, and sharing your story. It was, uh, it was a thorough, awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, before I do a quick outro and I let you go, um, if somebody wants to, uh, you know, reach out to you, uh, not necessarily on the professional side, but just maybe connect with you through social media, um, where can people find you? Um, if there's anything else that we didn't touch on or any final thoughts or any final words that you want to leave with us, uh, the platform's yours. I'll do a quick outro and then I'll let you go. So, uh, whatever you got in closing, uh, go for it, my man. 
Yeah. So in terms of finding me, I'm on um, primarily Instagram and Twitter. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. Instagram underscore V Hoffman. I think Twitter is the same. I'm not on Twitter as much. I do more so scrolling on Twitter than I do actually posting. Um, but no, other than that, I think that's really it. It's been a really great conversation. Um, I appreciate you kind of giving me the platform to dive into my backstory a little bit and hopefully talk about some things that'll help other people, whether it's strength and conditioning coaches or whether it's anybody, because I feel like a lot of this stuff is applicable to any any situation, any individual. So um, once again, really appreciate the conversation and it's been awesome. Cool, man. You're, you're welcome, Victor. Uh, really, really appreciate it, man. Uh, all of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say thank you so very much. I appreciate you guys. I uh, value you and uh, I'm super excited to have you guys coming back time and time again uh, to listen to these awesome life stories that uh, all the guests are coming on and, and sharing with all of us. Um, two places that you can uh, find myself and uh, reach out reach out to me and connect with me if you like. The first place is Instagram, Curious and Canon Podcast. Feel free to shoot me a DM, uh, introduce yourself, let's connect. I just, uh, again, value and love connecting with uh, new people, with human beings, getting to know people and uh, going that route. The second place that you can connect with me is uh, through email. If you think you would be a great guest or if you have a friend or an acquaintance you would like to uh, recommend as a guest for the podcast, go ahead, send me an email. Uh, that email is curiousandcandidpodcast at gmail.com. Introduce yourself, introduce your friend or acquaintance that you think might be a, a great guest uh, for the podcast, and uh, we will go from there. Um, email is just another great way, like I said, with uh, Instagram that you can just uh, send me an email, introduce yourself, we'll connect. Let's chat. Let's get to know each other. Um, I love it. If you guys would please subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. And then if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, please visit my website, awakentrainingandnutrition.com uh, to find out more details about the holistic lifestyle coaching. Um, hope you guys are uh, having a great day. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time on Curious and Candid Podcast.